Section 10 of the Underground Railroad, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 2, by William Still. Section 10. Captain F. and the Mayor of Norfolk. Twenty-one passengers secreted in a boat. November, 1855. Captain F. was certainly no ordinary man. Although he had been living a seafaring life for many years, and the marks of this calling were plainly enough visible in his manners and speech, he was nevertheless unlike the great mass of this class of men, not addicted to intemperance and profanity. On the contrary, he was a man of thought, and possessed in a large measure those humane traits of character which lead men to sympathize with suffering humanity wherever met with. It must be admitted, however, that the first impressions gathered from a hasty survey of his rough and rugged appearance, his large head, large mouth, large eyes, and heavy eyebrows, with a natural gift at keeping concealed the inner workings of his mind and feelings, were not calculated to inspire the belief that he was fitted to be entrusted with the lives of unprotected females and helpless children, that he could take pleasure in risking his own life to rescue them from the hell of slavery, that he could deliberately enter the enemy's domain, and with the faith of a martyr face the dread slaveholder, with his bowie-knives and revolvers, slave-hunters and bloodhounds, lynchings and penitentiaries, for humanity's sake but his deeds proved him to be a true friend of the slave, whilst his skill, bravery, and success stamped him as one of the most daring and heroic captains ever connected with the Underground Railroad cause. At the time he was doing most for humanity in rescuing bondsmen from slavery, slave laws were actually being the most rigidly executed. To show mercy, in any sense, to man or woman who might be caught assisting a poor slave to flee from the prison-house, was a matter not to be thought of in Virginia. This was perfectly well understood by Captain F. Indeed, he did not hesitate to say that his hazardous operations might any day result in the sacrifice of his life. But on this point he seemed to give himself no more concern than he would have done to know which way the wind would blow the next day. He had his own convictions about dying and the future, and he declared that he had no fear of death, however it might come. Still, he was not disposed to be reckless or needlessly imperil his life or the lives of those he undertook to aid. Nor was he averse to receiving compensation for his services. In Richmond, Norfolk, Petersburg, and other places where he traded, many slaves were fully awake to their condition. The great slave sales were the agencies that served to awaken a large number. Then the various mechanical trades were necessarily given to the slaves, for the master had no taste for greasy northern mechanics. Then again the stores had to be supplied, with porters, draymen, etc., from the slave population. In the hearts of many of the more intelligent amongst the slaves, the men, as mechanics, etc., the women, as dressmakers, chambermaids, etc., notwithstanding all the opposition and hard laws, the spirit of freedom was steadily burning. 
many of the slaves were half-brothers and sisters cousins nephews and nieces to their owners and of course blood would tell it was only necessary for the fact to be made known to a single reliable and intelligent slave that a man with a boat running north had the love of freedom for all mankind in his bosom to make that man an object of the greatest interest if an angel had appeared amongst them doubtless his presence would not have inspired greater anxiety and hope than did the presence of captain f the class most anxious to obtain freedom could generally manage to acquire some means which they would willingly offer to captains or conductors in the south for such assistance as was indispensable to their escape many of the slaves learned that if they could manage to cross mason and dixon's line even though they might be utterly destitute and penniless that they would then receive aid and protection from the vigilance committee here it may be well to state that whilst the committee gladly received and aided all who might come or be brought to them they never employed agents or captains to go into the south with a view of enticing or running off slaves so when captains operated they did so with the full understanding that they alone were responsible for any failures attending their movements the way is now clear to present captain f with his schooner lying at the wharf in norfolk loading with wheat and at the same time with twenty-one fugitives secreted therein while the boat was thus lying at her mooring the rumor was flying all over town that a number of slaves had escaped which created a general excitement a degree less perhaps than if the citizens had been visited by an earthquake the mayor of the city with a posse of officers with axes and long spears repaired to captain f's boat the fearless commander received his honor very coolly and as gracefully as the circumstances would admit the mayor gave him to understand who he was and by what authority he appeared on the boat and what he meant to do very well replied captain f here i am and this is my boat go ahead and search his honor with his deputies looked quickly around and then an order went forth from the mayor to spear the wheat thoroughly the deputies obeyed the command with alacrity but the spears brought neither blood nor groans and the sagacious mayor obviously concluded that he was barking up the wrong tree but the mayor was not there for nothing take the axes and go to work was the next order and the axe was used with terrible effect by one of the deputies the deck and other parts of the boat were chopped and split no greater judgment being exercised when using the axe than when spearing the wheat captain f all the while wearing an air of utter indifference or rather of entire composure indeed every step they took proved conclusively that they were wholly ignorant with regard to boat searching at this point with remarkable shrewdness captain f saw wherein he could still further confuse them by a bold strategical move as though about out of patience with the mayor's blunders the captain instantly reminded his honor that he had stood still long enough while his boat was being damaged chopped up etc now if you want to search continued he give me the axe and then point out the spot you want opened and i will open it for you very quick while uttering these words he presented as he was capable of doing an indignant and defiant countenance 
and intimated that it mattered not where or when a man died, provided he was in the right, and as though he wished to give particularly strong emphasis to what he was saying, he raised the axe and brought it down, edge foremost on the deck, with startling effect, at the same time causing splinters to fly from the boards. The mayor and his posse seemed, if not dreadfully frightened, completely confounded, and by the time Captain F. had again brought down his axe with increased power, demanding where they would have him open, they looked as though it was time for them to retire. And in a few minutes after they actually gave up the search and left the boat, without finding a soul. Daniel in the lion's den was not safer than were the twenty-one passengers secreted on Captain F.'s boat. The law had been carried out with a vengeance, but did not avail with this skilled captain. The five dollars were paid for being searched, the amount which was lawfully required of every captain sailing from Virginia, and the captain steered direct for the city of brotherly love. The wind of heaven favoring the good cause, he arrived safely in due time, and delivered his precious freight in the vicinity of Philadelphia, within the reach of the Vigilance Committee. The names of the passengers were as follows. Alan Tatum, Daniel Carr, Michael Vaughn, Thomas Nixon, Frederick Nixon, Peter Petty, Nathaniel Gardiner, John Brown, Thomas Freeman, James Foster, Godfrey Scott, Willis Wilson, Nancy Little, John Smith, Francis Haynes, David Johnson, Phyllis Galt, Alice Jones, Ned Wilson, and Sarah C. Wilson, and one other who subsequently passed on, having been detained on account of sickness. These passengers were most likely-looking articles. A number of them doubtless would have commanded the very highest prices in the Richmond market. Among them were some good mechanics, one excellent dressmaker, some prime waiters and chambermaids, men and women with brains, some of them evincing remarkable intelligence and decided bravery, just the kind of passengers that gave the greatest satisfaction to the Vigilance Committee. The interview with these passengers was extremely interesting. Each one gave his or her experience of slavery, the escape, etc., in his or her own way, deeply impressing those who had the privilege of seeing and hearing them with the fact of the growing spirit of liberty, and the wonderful perception and intelligence possessed by some of the sons of toil in the South. While all the names of these passengers were duly entered on the Underground Railroad records, the number was too large, and the time they spent with the attempts to escape were made by Daniel, after being sold to North Carolina. For this offense he was on one occasion stripped naked and flogged severely. This did not cure him. Prior to his joining Captain F.'s party he had fled to the swamps, and dwelt there for three months, surrounded with wild animals and reptiles, and it was this state of solitude that he left directly before finding Captain F. Daniel had a wife in Portsmouth to whom he succeeded in paying a private visit, when, to his unspeakable joy, he made the acquaintance of the noble Captain F., whose big heart was delighted to give him a passage north. Daniel, after being sold, had been allowed, within the two years, only one opportunity of visiting his wife. Being thus debarred, he resolved to escape. His wife, whose name was Hannah, had three children, slaves. Their names were Sam, Dan, and Baby. 
The name of the latter was unknown to him. Michael Vaughan Michael was about thirty-one years of age, with superior physical proportions and no lack of common sense. His color was without paleness, dark and unfading, and his manly appearance was quite striking. Michael belonged to a lady whom he described as a very disagreeable woman. For all my life I have belonged to her, but for the last eight years I have hired my time. I paid my mistress one hundred and twenty dollars a year. A part of the time I had to find my board and all my clothing. This was the direct and unequivocal testimony that Michael gave of his slave life, which was the foundation for alleging that his mistress was a very disagreeable woman. Michael left a wife and one child in slavery, but they were not owned by his mistress. Before escaping, he felt afraid to lead his companion into the secret of his contemplated movements, as he felt that there was no possible way for him to do anything for her deliverance. On the other hand, any revelation of the matter might prove too exciting for the poor soul. Her name was Esther. That he did not lose his affection for her whom he was obliged to leave so unceremoniously is shown by the appended letter. New Bedford August twenty second, eighteen fifty five. Dear Sir, I send you this to inform you that I expect my wife to come that way. If she should, you will direct her to me. When I came through your city last fall, you took my name in your office, which was then given to you Michael Vaughan. Since then, my name is William Brown, number one hundred and thirty Kempton Street. Please give my wife and child's name to Dr. Lundy and tell him to attend to it for me. Her name is Esther, and the child's name Louisa. Truly yours, William Brown. Michael worked in a foundry. In church fellowship he was connected with the Methodists, his mistress with the Baptists. Thomas Nixon was about nineteen years of age, of a dark hue and quite intelligent. He had not much excuse to make for leaving, except that he was tired of staying with his owner, as he feared he might be sold some day. So he thought that he might as well save him the trouble. Thomas belonged to a Mr. Bockover, a wholesale grocer, number 12 Brewer Street. Thomas left behind him his mother and three brothers. His father was sold away when he was an infant, consequently he never saw him. Thomas was a member of the Methodist Church. His master was of the same persuasion. Frederick Nixon was about thirty-three years of age, and belonged truly to the wide-awake class of slaves, as his marked physical and mental appearance indicated. He had a more urgent excuse for escaping than Thomas. He declared that he fled because his owner wanted to work him hard without allowing him any chance, and had treated him rough. Frederick was also one of Mr. Bockover's chattels. He left his wife Elizabeth with four children in bondage. They were living in Eatontown, North Carolina. It had been almost one year since he had seen them. Had he remained in Norfolk, he had not the slightest prospect of being reunited to his wife and children, as he had been already separated from them for about three years. This painful state of affairs only increased his desire to leave those who were brutal enough to make such havoc in his domestic relations. Peter Petty was about twenty-four years of age, and wore a happy countenance. He was a person of agreeable manners, and withal pretty smart. He acknowledged that he had been owned by Joseph Bokley, hair inspector, 
Peter did not give Mr. Bulkley a very good character, however. He said that Mr. B. was rowdyish in his habits, was deceitful and sly, and would sell his slaves any time. Hard bondage, something like the children of Israel, was his simple excuse for fleeing. He hired his time of his master, for which he was compelled to pay a hundred and fifty-six dollars a year. When he lost time by sickness or rainy weather, he was required to make up the deficiency, also find his clothing. He left a wife, Lavinia, and one child, Eliza, both slaves. Peter communicated to his wife with secret intention to leave, and she acquiesced in his going. He left his parents also. All his sisters and brothers had been sold. Peter would have been sold, too, but his owner was under the impression that he was too good a Christian to violate the laws by running away. Peter's master was quite a devoted Methodist, and was attached to the same church with Peter. While on the subject of religion, Peter was asked about the kind and character of preaching that he had been accustomed to hear, whereupon he gave the following graphic specimen. Servants obey your masters. Good servants make good masters. When your mistress speaks to you, don't pout out your mouths. When you want to go to church, ask your mistress and master, etc., etc. Peter declared that he had never heard but one preacher speak against slavery, and that one was obliged to leave suddenly for the North. He said that a Quaker lady spoke in meeting against slavery one day, which resulted in an outbreak and final breaking up of the meeting. Phyllis Galt Phyllis was a widow, about thirty years of age. The blood of two races flowed in about equal proportions through her veins. Such was her personal appearance, refinement, manners, and intelligence, that had the facts of her slave life been unknown, she would have readily passed for one who had possessed superior advantages. But the facts in her history proved that she had been made to feel very keenly the horrifying effects of slavery, not in the field, for she had never worked there, nor as a common drudge, for she had always been required to fill higher spheres. She was a dressmaker, but not without fear of the auction block. This dreaded destiny was the motive which constrained her to escape with the twenty others, secreted in the hold of a vessel expressly arranged for bringing away slaves. Death had robbed her of her husband at the time that the fever raged so fearfully in Norfolk, this sad event deprived her of the hope she had of being purchased by her husband, as he had intended. She was haunted by the constant thought of again being sold, as she had once been, and as she had witnessed the sale of her sister's four children after the death of their mother. Phyllis was, to use her own striking expression, in a state of great horror. She felt that nothing would relieve her but freedom. After having fully pondered the prospect of her freedom, and the only mode offered by which she could escape, she consented to endure bravely whatever of suffering and trial might fall to her lot in the undertaking, and as was the case with thousands of others, she succeeded. She remained several days in the family of a member of the committee in Philadelphia, favorably impressing all who saw her. As she had formed a very high opinion of Boston, from having heard it so thoroughly reviled in Norfolk, she desired to go there. The committee made no objections, gave her a free ticket, etc. From that time to the present she has ever sustained a good Christian character, and as an industrious, upright, and intelligent woman she has been and is highly respected by all who know her. 
The following letter is characteristic of her. Boston, March 22, 1858. My dear sir, I received your photograph by Mr. Cooper, and it afforded me much pleasure to do so. I hope that these few lines may find you and your family well, as it leaves me and little Dicky at present. I have no interesting news to tell you, more than that there is a great revival of religion through the land. I almost forgotten to thank you for your kindness, and our little Dick, he is very wild and goes to school, and it is my desire and prayer for him to grow up a useful man. I wish you would try to gain some information from Norfolk, and write me word how the times are there, for I am afraid to write. I wish you would see the doctor for me, and ask him if he could carefully find out any way that we could steal little Johnny, for I think to raise nine or ten hundred dollars for such a child is outrageous. Just at this time I feel as if I would rather steal him than buy him. Give my kind regards to the doctor and his family. Tell Miss Margaret and Mrs. Landy that I would like to see them out here this summer again, to have a nice time in Cambridge. Miss Walker, that spent the evening with me in Cambridge, sends much love to you, and Mrs. Landy, give my kindness, regards to Mrs. Still and the children, and receive a portion for yourself. I have no more to say at present, but remain your respectfully, Florence P. Galt. When you write, direct your letters, Mrs. Florence P. Galt, No. 62 Pinckney Street. End of Section 10